So last week I mentioned that when we think of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, one of the first things that come to our mind are the miracles that Jesus uh, performed. And uh, however, what Luke is trying to draw our attention to here in Luke chapter 4 is that there was another whole aspect of his ministry, and that was his preaching ministry. The Puritans used to have a saying which said that God had one son and he made him a preacher. Now that has to have some type of significance, not only gives me a big head, no, I'm just kidding, uh, but, but has to have some type of significance that Jesus had a preaching ministry. And last week, uh, we sought to answer the question, how did Jesus preach? And we saw that he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, that in every aspect of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, you could find the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit active in working in him and through him. And in the same way, as followers of Jesus Christ, if that was true for the one that we follow, then it ought to be even more true for us. Then in everything we think and everything we say and our entire lives should be, again, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that was how he preached. But this week, we want to take a look at what he preached. And that's a really important, important question for every time and season, but for especially the time that we're living in now. Uh, to answer the question what he preached is important because it's going to show us exactly why he came, what his purpose was in coming. And it also helps us because you and I are commanded as followers of Christ to preach the same gospel, to preach the same message that Jesus preached, and not to alter it or change it, but just preach the same thing. So that's why it's so important. So last week, how did Jesus preach in the power of the Holy Spirit? This week, we're going to see in the text of Scripture, I hope, clearly that what Jesus preached was this. He preached salvation for sinners. He preached salvation for sinners. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to work through the text, and hopefully you're going to see how this is applied, how this is that Jesus is preaching this, and that this is indeed the message that he preached. So we're going to pick up in verse 16. Note, he says, And he came to Nazareth where he had begun, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus had already made a, a name for himself in the region of Galilee, but he eventually makes his way back to his hometown of Nazareth. And what I love is the scriptures say here, it says, as was his custom, that is, as was his habit, as was his normal way of living, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That means almost every day of his life in his home, he was brought to the house of worship week in and week out, and he was faithful to attend. And, and, and so if, if gathering together with the saints, with God's people, was important to Jesus, then certainly it should be important to us, followers of Jesus Christ. But most of the time, most of his life, when he came to the, to the synagogue, he would listen to the word of God being preached and taught. Uh, but now that he had begun his public ministry, now he was the one that was doing the more majority of the teaching. 
And so what we find here is Luke actually gives us a little bit of a picture of what that worship service would have looked like. And it's kind of interesting that their worship would have been very similar to the one that we've experienced here already this morning. When somebody would come in on the Sabbath for the Sabbath day to worship together, uh, they would be greeted by, uh, they would begin their service by uh, uh, praying together, by singing corporate hymns together, by reading scripture, specifically from the first five books of the law together. All of this would be done. Uh, Then there would be a speaker, and oftentimes there were guest speakers. This particular week was Jesus And he would have gone then after the singing, and he would have gone up uh, to a raised platform. All these things are very similar. And at that point, somebody handed him a scroll. Now, this was normative. This particular scroll was the Isaiah scroll, and they handed it to him. And the Bible says that he opened it, and he began to go to a specific passage of Scripture. Now, this would have been more difficult for him than it would have been for us. Uh, When I get up, I just say, hey, open your Bibles, if you will, to... The book of Luke, chapter 4, and all you got to do is find the book, look at the chapter, look at the verse. Well, his Bible, his book of Isaiah, didn't have chapters, didn't have verses. They didn't even have paragraphs, didn't even have sentences, capital letters, or even punctuation. It was just letters written one right after another all the way through the book. So to find specifically the passage that he wanted to find, he had to be intimately related, uh, intimately um, knowledgeable of the Word of God. Of course, we know that this is what Jesus was. So he was to open up to the exact passage that he wanted to read. And that exact passage was Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1, 1 through 2, and verses 50, or chapter 58, verse 6. This is where he read from. Now, here's what you have to understand. The people in the congregation would have been familiar with that passage. It would be like me getting up in the morning or this morning and saying, hey, we're going to preach on John 3, 16. All of you would be like, oh, I've heard this before, all right? But for them, they would have sat instead, and they would have known exactly what he was about to preach on because the passages that he chose were messianic prophecies. There were Old Testament prophecies that Isaiah had written about the promised Messiah to come. Within what he read, and I read those verses to you just a minute ago, it would have answered the who, the what, and the how. The who that Isaiah was writing about was indeed the Messiah. Uh, he, he, he spoke of, in verse 18, note, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The anointed one that the Old Testament speaks of was a way of talking about the promised Messiah or the promised Christ, the one that God had promised from eternity's past or from, from years past that he would send. And so the, the who is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. The, the, the what is in the next couple verses, that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind and set uh, liberty for those who are oppressed. So Isaiah was talking about the Messiah coming for what purpose? To save his people. And then he actually says how he would ultimately do it. Look at verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, is another way of saying the year of Jubilee. In, in, according to law, Leviticus chapter 25, God had commanded that every 50th year for the nation of Israel would be a year of Jubilee. This would be a year when all the debts of the people were forgiven. And everyone said, amen. Yes, bring it back. This was a year of liberty, of amnesty, 
of redemption, whereby all debts were canceled, slaves were set free, the lands that, that were lost because of their heavy debt and had to be sold to pay off that debt will now return to their original owners. This was a wonderful time, and basically it would happen one time in your lifetime, depending on how it would fall. And so we could see, we can understand why this would be such a wonderful time. Uh, if we woke up tomorrow and we begin to realize that tomorrow was, began the year of Jubilee and all of our debts would be paid, what would we we'd be doing tonight? We'd be getting ourselves in crazy debt because it's going to be forgiven for tomorrow, right? And so this was a great time. But what the prophet was saying is, is that God would be sending his Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. He came to save his people and he would save them by canceling all of their debt. But he's going to do it in a way that Israel had never experienced. He's going to forgive their debts in a way that they had never seen or experienced. This would be the end all to be all years of Jubilee, the years of the Lord. And so the question for us then is this, is going to be, what did he mean by that? Well, we'll note in verse 20, it says, when he got done reading, and so this is what the people would have understood what he read. Then they said, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Just like when I begin to preach, everybody's eyes are transfixed on me or whoever else in the place. But they, all the eyes were transfixed. They wanted to know exactly what was happening. And here's what Jesus says. Here's his message. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus does what we do here. He actually takes part in what is called expository preaching. There's different types of preaching. I mean, you guys know this. You grew up with it. There's sometimes topical preaching where somebody, and it can be very biblical and God-honoring, and, and that's basically, hey, I've got a topic, now I'm going to show you everywhere else in the Bible that, that backs that up. And sometimes we need to do that, like in the case of maybe voting or we're addressing a particular subject. But really, the most biblical manner of preaching is what we call expository preaching. We just begin with the text of Scripture, and then we say whatever it is that the, that the text of Scripture is letting us teach. So you would read it, you explain it, and you apply it. Well, Jesus gets up on this particular Sabbath day, and he begins to preach, and he does the same thing. He reads the text, he explains it, and he applies it in one sentence. Here's the message. I'm the explanation and the application of what Isaiah wrote. He said, I am the actual Messiah that was promised from so long back. I'm here today to save you by eliminating your debts. Now, all this is great news. Man, this is a really bold statement based on Christ. But here's what we have to understand, church. What debt did he come to forgive? What debt did he come to cancel? What was his primary purpose? Now, I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm going to let Philip Riken, who you have no idea who is, going to answer that question for you. I'm actually going to do what I normally don't do. I'm going to give you a kind of a longer quote than normal and by Philip Riken, who answers this particular question. What did Jesus specifically come to do? What was he preaching and saying that he had come to achieve? And so let me read this to you. The only reason I'm reading it is because my my seminary professor said, the only, when, only time you quote is when the person says it better than you can. And so that's why I'm going with him. Here's what it is. I'm going to give you the words I believe are going to be up on the screen. There we go. Okay, now just follow along. Here's how he answers the question. And this is the question. What did Jesus mean when he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? Here it is. These words were revolutionary, but not in the way that most people thought. 
When they heard what Jesus said, they assumed that he w- this was some kind of political manifesto. They expected an earthly salvation that would bring physical deliverance. Some of them wanted him to give a poor a higher standard of living, a social revolution. Does this sound familiar? And he says some of them wanted to, him to heal the sick, a medical revolution. Still others wanted him to overthrow the Romans, a political uh, revolution. Again, all of this sounds very, very familiar. He says Jesus had the power to do it all. In fact, that is, what, that is what Satan tempted him to do, and it was a very real temptation. His temptation is take away every problem and physical problem in the world, but yet Jesus didn't do it. Why? But it was not what he was called to do. People who were looking only for an earthly kingdom were frustrated when Jesus failed to bring it. Yes, he fed the hungry. Yes, he gave sight to the blind and released people from satanic oppression. Jesus cared for people's bodies as well as their souls. His miracles helped prove that he was the Christ, showing that God's kingdom had come. Nevertheless, they were not his primary purpose. They were not his primary purpose. Then what was his primary purpose? I'm gonna give it to you here. It was to free us from the poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression of sin. Jesus said that this is the way, the reason that he came. This is why he came to preach. Although there would be physical implications of this, Jesus would heal some of the sick. Uh, even though at the same exact time there would be future physical ramifications. In other words, when Jesus Christ came back at the second coming, there would be no more tears. There would be no more sickness. Amen, 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 rest. Uh, Ultimately, Jesus goes, that's the long game. That's the long game, which is ultimately going to happen. But let me tell you what is going to happen and why I came and what's going to happen today in your very midst. And what he says is he came to do what? Free us from the poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression of sin. How do we know this? Well, when you look into the text, it clearly, I believe, clearly tells us because he didn't come to make a change through a number, using a number of swords, but he came using a number of words that he used. No, notice, if you will, the, the, the key word in this whole section is proclaim. And Jesus uses it three times. He says that he, he came to proclaim the good news to the poor that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, again, then when he gets done, he comes and he says, today this scripture had been fulfilled. But notice something, nothing physically changed for any of them. He said, this has been done. This has been fulfilled in your midst. Here it is, it's done, it's happening. And yet the poor who were listening were still poor. The, The people who were being oppressed we're still oppressed. So if Jesus was talking physically, that these physical things were going to come about at that point, and that was his primary purpose, then he was a miserable failure because nothing at that moment changed. But he's speaking in the past tense as though it had happened. And the Greek verb means that something has distinctly happened and will continue to happen in the future. The only way to be able to understand this is to understand that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical but he was talking about what was happening spiritually, that it was the spiritually oppressed that he had come to save, the spiritually captive, the, the, the spiritually blind, the spiritually impoverished. That's why he came. 
So then why does he use all these physical visual pictures? These physical realities uh, serve as metaphors for spiritual realities. They are physical pictures of deeper spiritual uh, uh, needs in our life. It's, it's, for example, he uses four of them. Poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. Let, let me just pick out one and show you how he uses this. Let's just talk about the poor for a moment. The people in Nazareth that he would have been preaching, his own hometown, the people were immensely poor. Very, very poor. So when he begins to talk about the poverty of people, they identify with it, Right? You want to identify with your audience. When I sit here and say that Georgia football won yesterday, I'm identifying with you. Some of you are praising God. Others feel sick to your stomach. Do you see how, see how you're identifying with the group, right? Jesus comes and he says, and he talks about coming and relieving and bringing salvation to the poor. And everybody in the congregation that's hearing this feels it. They feel it. Why? Because their life is spent in poverty. They know very clearly what poverty is. They know what it's like to be without, to be completely bankrupt, to have nothing of their own, to, be do, to, to have nothing that could change their own circumstances. Now, the rich don't understand that. The rich, like many of us, at least as far as the world is compared, we may not think of it, but we don't know oftentimes what that actual need is. We say we need something, but it's usually just an upgrade of something we already have. And so for the rich person, it's much more difficult for them to understand what, what real poverty actually teaches an individual. So when he comes and he says he's going to come to save the poor, and they understand what poverty is and what it means not to have, it's much easier for them to relate that when he says, I'm talking about your spiritual poverty. That within yourself, you do not have anything that you can offer God or make a change at all. You are completely helpless in your spiritual poverty. They're able to take their physical experience and easily apply it to their what? To their spiritual experience, and they're able to see it. This is why James says this in James 1.9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly brother that James talks about is those who are impoverished. And he says, let you exalt in your exaltation. What, what exaltation does a poor man have? He has this privilege that God has given him to allow him to better understand what poverty is, what spiritual poverty is, because he's, he knows what physical poverty is. And this is the same way, and, and in other words, Jesus is saying that in a way that the poor man actually has a benefit to help them understand what Christ had come to do for them over the rich. And this is why Jesus said at the same time, and this is why Jesus would later say, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. They have a hard time seeing spiritual need because they don't know what need is. They have want for nothing. And so what happens here is now, does this mean that Jesus didn't come for the rich? That Jesus came for the free? That he, that, that he didn't come for even the oppressor? No, that's not what he means at all. In fact, later in this text, we'll see this next week, he actually speaks of two people who came to faith in Christ. One was poor, a widow, of Zarephath, and one rich was Nathan of Assyrian, and both of them came to faith in Jesus Christ, one rich, one poor, but how were they able to come? Both, by an act of God, were able to show them their spiritual poverty and their need for Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes and he tells them, this is fulfilled in your presence today, he says it's fulfilled, did you note that last part? By their hearing, in their hearing. 
So the change that Jesus brought about had to be brought about through something that people hear, which lets us know that this has to be the gospel that brings about a spiritual salvation because we are saved by grace through faith alone. But how do we come to that faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When Jesus begins to focus on all this poverty and all this captivity and all this blindness and all this oppression, he wasn't leaving anybody out. He was including everybody in it. What he was basically saying is, he's saying this is how we have to be and this is the spiritual condition that we have. It was not only letting them know the condition that they were in, but it was also encouragement of those who were phys- experienced physical poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. What he was saying is those groups of people are usually marginalized. They're usually pushed out. They're usually not looked after. They're usually forgotten about. And what Jesus, let's just be honest with that. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking about reality. I'm talking about if you are poor, you are not gonna have benefits that somebody who as rich as had, right? Right? We all, we, we all understand that. It's just the way in which the world works. All of us understand that. It's the reality in which we live. But, but what he's saying is, he's telling even, even those that are the outcasts of society, I will not overlook you. You will not be passed over. You will not miss out for this. I am coming for you, all of those who identify themselves as spiritually impoverished. So quoting Reichen one more time, this was not a way of excluding anyone, not even the rich, but including everyone, even the poor, even the poor. So let me wrap this up. It says, now just as Jesus used the picture of the poor to show our spiritual poverty, so Jesus uses the idea of captives, of the blind and the oppressed in the same way. Jesus came primarily to rescue those who were held captive by sin, to give sight to those who were blinded by sin and for, to free those who were underneath the crushing weight of sin. Do you get this? The world is disappointed. If, if Jesus had come to accomplish all that in the physical, he was a miserable failure because even his own disciples suffered greatly and were persecuted and oppressed greatly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But if he came to be able to deliver those people based on the message that he was preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, then that's how it could have been accomplished right then and continues to be accomplished today. So what Jesus preached, he preached that he came to save sinners by paying their sin debt. Now let's give a little bit of application uh, if we can to, to wrap up. Why is this so important? It's so important because our natural default setting as Christians is almost always the physical. In other words, you and I spend far more time worrying about thinking about the physical things of life. We're almost consumed with it with very little bit of time at all thought about what? The spiritual. Uh, Think about it for a moment. Um, Think about the old prayer meetings you used to have in a church. Some of you remember those. Uh, Some of you remember when you go into a small group, you say, hey, let's have some prayer requests. 90% of everything that is given is about somebody's broken toe, somebody's grandma, somebody's job that they need, somebody who's suffering from somebody. And listen, are those things important? Yes. Jesus Christ cared for all of our physical afflictions. He's, He's compassionate towards those things. But the point is, is the majority of all we pray for, very little of it has anything to do with anything eternally minded or anything about the spiritual well-being of those who are ultimately around us. 
Now, why is that? Well, then this is, well, let me just say this. This is even in the fact or, or, or the fact that the Bible keeps trying to push us the other way. Have you ever noticed how many times the Bible is trying to get us off the physical and onto the eternal and onto the spiritual? Let me give you a couple of verses. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That's they're fleeting. They're changing all the time. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits until eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He says, in the long term, while we're waiting, all of the world is eager for this whole world to be changed. And one day at his second coming, Jesus will turn everything that's upside down right side up. And he will make everything right. And all of those things that afflict humanity will be gone. But that's the long game. His focus is to ultimately do what? To save sinners. To deliver them from the imprisonment of sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, you are not a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of a greater kingdom, a kingdom that has come and is coming at this point. You are a citizen of heaven. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't be too overcome by what is here. Don't be too, uh, too, too influenced by what is here or too um, invested in what is here. Why? Because this is not our home. And so yet, no matter how much the word of God tries to keep reminding us of this over and over and over again, again, our default setting just keeps going back to the physical time and time again. Even as a church, and we're seeing this, I believe, in, in, in the social justice movement within the church, where the social justice movement has become a preeminent um, a move by the church itself to be able to make sure that every social injustice is now undone, and that, that seems to be what the drive of the church is, and that is not the ultimate drive of the church. Is the church concerned for that and the suffering and mistreatment of other people? Absolutely all of those things are important. All of those things are significant, but they're not most significant. Even the feeding of the poor, Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. What does that mean? It means that trying to take care of all of the physical ailments of this world is like trying to fill a leaking bucket. It's just the more that you pour in, the more that it ends up pouring out, you're never going to ultimately be able to achieve it. Does it mean that we don't do those things? Of course not. Of course, as a believer that we do, but it's not preeminent. And, and, and just to show that this is how we keep going back once again, when I first came to Mercy Hill, which at the time was Celebration Baptist Church, uh, at the time, um, when we first came, uh, I wanted to get the church and mobilize them on missions. So one of the first ones that we went to is a place called Casas, or a ministry called Casas Por Cristo. And we ended up going down to Juarez, Mexico, to build a home for a family. Now, we knew the story before we went down there. Here was the story. Imagine me as a pastor getting up and sharing this with the congregation. There is a family, a needy family in Juarez, Mexico, who do not have a home, who are homeless at this point, and one of their youngest children died from exposure because of their homelessness. We shared that story. And how many people do you think we took down to build that home for that group of people? Well, we had two 15-passenger vans packed full, 
30 people ready to be able to go. Let's go. Let's help this family. Let's help this family. Let's go. Great. Awesome. Amazing. When I get back, I said, we need to make, make another step. Hey, I got a plan. Let's go ahead and let's do the same thing. Let's take the same energy and the same money because we have an opportunity to be able to go to an unreached people group who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ at all, and there we're going to begin to share the gospel with other people. I could not fill up my Honda Civic to get people there. Didn't even need it. Had plenty of room, plenty of leg room, plenty of space for everything we needed to bring down there. Why? It's simply because we see things more physical than we do spiritual. We don't see truly what reality is. Now, this, does this mean that we lack compassion? Again, no. We should be compassionate people, loving people. When we see, when we see uh, trouble in the world and people in need of the world, can we just sit there and say, go on your way and be blessed, as James says, without actually doing something for them? No, in the heart of a believer, the compassion that God gives us, we are driven to use what we have to be able to help those around us. Amen? That is going to happen. But again, it's not preeminent. But let me, let me give you an example. You're still not convinced. Um, I've been watching too much news. So let me try to just try, drain our minds with, with the word. So with the word, Jesus does this, and we see this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 there's droves of people coming out, and they're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden they realize it's way past dinner time. In fact, a lot of the people that have come haven't eaten in days. And they come out, and Jesus has compassion on them, and the disciples say, where are we going to get food for them? He says, what do we have? He says, we have two fish, and we have five loaves. Jesus then performs a miracle and feeds the thousands, right? Feeds the thousands. But the next day, at the end of that passage, it says that they came to him. Jesus knew that they were going to come to him, and they were going to try to take him and force him to do what? to bring about a revolution, to stop all of the injustice in the world, to stop all those things. You know what Jesus does? He runs the other way. He, gets, he, he leaves and he goes completely somewhere else. The people find out what it's all about and they chase him down and they come back to him. Here's kind of the conversation that goes on. The conversation between Jesus and the people are, hey, it was pretty cool, they said, about what you did the other day by taking the food and feeding the thousands. That is what the Messiah is supposed to do. Because they are supposed to be like Moses. But if you're going to be like Moses, bro, you better get your game hat on. Because he, you fed thousands in one day. He fed millions for 40 years in the wilderness. So you've got a little bit of catching up to do if you're really going to prove yourself to be the Messiah. Jesus' answer, no food for you. No food for you. You tell me why Jesus would say no to give food to somebody who was impoverished? You answer that question to me. If that's preeminently what his greatest need is, then why would Jesus say no? In that particular case, it was because there was something greater of a need and it was their spiritual well-being. And he knew if he had done exactly what they said, that they would fail to see the spiritual need that they had, that they were lost and they were spiritually impoverished and bankrupt. So he refused to do it. And you know what he did? He lost almost all his following. They were very, very disappointed in him because he wasn't there to change everything in the moment, everything physically, everything politically at the moment. And Jesus simply sits here and says, that's not why I primarily came. That is the long game, but it's not the here and it's not ultimately the now. Why do we struggle so much with this? Even though the Bible, I believe, is clear with it. I think for a couple reasons. Number one, we focus more on the physical than the spiritual because the spiritual, we can't see it. We can see the physical needs around us. 
we have a hard time really identifying the spiritual needs. Here's what we do. We see somebody that doesn't have something, that doesn't, you know, I'll give you a very quick example. How are we our time? We're good. Okay, my message isn't as short as Jesus. I'm still working on it. But, but here's, here's what we see. Yesterday, I was, we were coming back from a track meet. Uh, my son and I stopped to be able to eat. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, we're watching, and there's cars lining up for the Star ATM, you know, those little standalones. And there's a lady in a little tractor, craftsman tractor, in line with everybody else driving up. And so we're taking pictures because it's the same tractor I have, and my family likes to mock me. And, uh, and so they're, they're taking a picture of it. But as I saw her drive around in it, then it started, began to set in my mind that this woman is... is doesn't have a whole lot of money. This woman, you know, there's a, there's a problem here. And so it's easy for me to be able to sit there and have compassion because you understand that there's poverty here. We can see it. We have a hard time, you and I, seeing the, 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 the spiritual poverty. In fact, we usually misinterpret it. We usually misinterpret it as somebody being obnoxious, horrible human being, against America, against what we believe. We view them as the ultimately enemy instead of sitting there and going, yes, these are all true. These, these things are true. They are not for God. They're enemies of God. But there should be some point at some, at some point that you and I recognize that there's a real spiritual poverty that's going on here that's causing this type of living. And so there should be a compassion. Instead of getting angry at them, there should be a compassion at them and to see that what they need above all else is the person of Jesus Christ. Number two, we can feel it. Uh, again, when, when, we, when we look and we look at all these kind of things and, and, and we begin to uh, see, uh, we, we, when we give to somebody who is impoverished, we feel good about ourselves. We can go off and we can hand out food and all of a sudden we walk back and we're like, man, what a great day, what an awesome day. Do you know what I feel like the majority of the time I share the gospel not good. I usually, I usually sit there and go, man, did I say everything? Did I, did I say what was right? I shouldn't have said this or I should have said that or I didn't have the answer for that. A majority of the time, it just is cold and the response is cold. There's, there, there's, there, there's just, I don't feel good half the time when I share it. And I think that that's why we lead more to the physical than the spiritual. And third, we're loved for it. If you'll go around just helping people with suffering and the temporal means and just doing away from that, a lost and dying world will love you. They'll think you're the greatest thing as long as you don't say what it is that you believe. But here's what happens. The moment you begin to share what you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you begin to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you automatically are a part of the problem in the culture in which we live. You are an oppressor and you need to be silenced. And so isn't it a lot easier for me to be able to go and just be able to help somebody physically and for me to be able to look like a good person than for me to be booed and canceled out because of the gospel message in which I'm ultimately preaching? These are all reasons why we navigate to that. Here's what we need more than anything. We need our spiritual eyes to be opened. We need to be able to see the spiritual world more than the flesh and the, more than the physical world in which we live. I, I reminded of 2 Kings chapter 6 with the story of Elisha. Do you remember this? When Elisha kind of messed up things for the king of Syria, he kept telling uh, the, ki the king of Israel the plans that Syria was doing. He's angry. He wants to kill him. So he surrounds the city with all of his chariots and all of his men and mighty men. And, and all of a sudden, Elisha's servant, I mean, he is scared to death and he doesn't know what to do. He goes, what should we do? And then Elisha begins to pray and says, God, open up his eyes so that he can see. He opens up his eyes and he sees, and he sees surrounded that army of Syrians is a multitude of fiery chariots surrounding them. 
ready to be able to move at the very voice of God. And he says, let them be able to see. My prayer is that you and I, as Mercy Hill, I can't control what's happening out there. I can't even control what's going on in here. But all I can do is make sure that this church, though we are going to be immensely compassionate people to the physical needs around us, that we will speak up when there are things that are clearly wrong consistently with the word of God, that all those things, that those things happen, that you and I will not miss or distort the purpose and the message that Jesus Christ has given to us the same message that he is here to deliver and to free those from the bondage of sin is the same primary effort and ministry and message that you and I are called to preach. That is what we ultimately do. And when our eyes are open to that, let me read and finish with one more quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this. He said, the saving of souls. If a man has once gained love to persisting sinners and his blessed master, will be an all-absorbing passion to him. It will carry him away that he will almost forget about himself and the saving of others. He will be like the brave fireman who cares not for the scorch or the heat so that he may rescue the poor creature on whom true humanity has set its heart. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and, un, uh, and unprayed for. This is how you and our eyes need to open. Yes, we have physical needs for those who are around us. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, we can't help but to be compassionate and even move to be able to do those things. But this is not preeminent. What good does it do if a person gains the whole world but loses their soul? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus, that our message will be your message. God, that we will in a world and even in, a church, in the church movement, which is leading people to uh, really focus primarily on uh, in making preeminent what is in the here and now. God, give us the wisdom to know how to navigate that, to work on those things, to address those issues, but to address them biblically first and foremost. And secondly, to understand that even as we're meeting those needs in the back of our mind, there's a burning knowledge and a burning sincerity that their greatest need is to know you, Jesus Christ. We love you. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. I'm gonna be standing.